Well, it's good to see you all this morning. We're going to be in Mark chapter 15, looking at verses 33 through 47, the, the death and the burial of Jesus. Thanks, guys. Mark 15, verses 33 through 47. And what we're doing here in the month of June, as Pastor Dustin takes some much-needed time off, is uh, Aaron preached for us last week. I'm preaching this week. We've got a couple of guest preachers in the next two weeks. And uh, we're, we're preaching from a variety of texts, which is different than what we normally do. Normally, we take a book. We preach straight through it. We'll get back to that in July. Uh, but for this morning, at least, we're going to be in Mark chapter 15. Let me read it for us now. Mark 15, beginning in verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemesepachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. There are also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of the preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. This is God's word. John Calvin said, in the cross of Christ, as in a splendid theater, the incomparable goodness of God is set before the whole world. In his classic book, The Cross of Christ, John Stott said, if we're looking for a definition of love, we should not look in a dictionary, but at Calvary. The ultimate expression of both God's glory and God's love is found in the cross of Christ. On the cross, God glorified himself. His justice became manifest. His wrath became satisfied. His grace and mercy exploded. 
On the cross, Jesus atoned for our sin. He paid for our failures. He bled for our transgressions. He died for our iniquities. On the cross, Jesus reconciled us to God. He cleansed us of our filth. He redeemed us from slavery. He rescued us from hell. He reinstated us into communion. And He restored us to life. On the cross, Jesus substituted His life for ours. Taking our sin and giving back His own righteousness. As the church father, Irenaeus, said, the glory of God is man fully alive. On the cross, Jesus died to make us fully alive. And so today, I, I just want to marvel at, at that collision of God's glory and God's love for us revealed at the cross of Christ. I just want us to see, the, as Paul put it, the, the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ for us. I don't think we can ever hear that too much. I wake up and I forget it. How could I forget such great news? The, the truth of the gospel is that not only did Jesus die for us, that He's not leaving us. Jesus is not a part-time lover. John 13.1 says, Jesus loved us to the end. I don't know about you, but I need a love, and you probably need a love that doesn't stop halfway. I've had enough halfway love in my life. What we need is a love that goes all the way to the end. A kind of love that reaches all the way down into the darkest corners of our hearts and brings the light in where we don't even know we need it. A halfway love brings a halfway salvation. But an all-the-way love, as we find in Christ, brings an all-the-way salvation. Jesus loved us to the end. To death. God didn't do this begrudgingly. You know, like some frustrated parent helping their child do something that the child could easily do themselves. We couldn't do this ourselves. And he's not angry that it took this drastic measure. He's not regretting the cost to himself. It was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. And in fact, as our intercessor now in heaven, he's, he's still applying that finished work to us. The way the author of Hebrews says it, he loves us to the uttermost. Jesus loves to the uttermost of our need, to the uttermost of our sin, to the uttermost of his divine capabilities, which are endless, unfathomable. Jesus is the only one who can perfectly say to us, I love you to death. Now that's not to say that the death of Jesus isn't something to look at soberly. It, it, it is. There's a darkness here in this passage that we must peer into in order to see the light ahead. And so I actually want to look at the darkness 
so that we can see the light. So we're going to see three aspects of this darkness. The darkness on the earth, the darkness over the sun, and the darkness in the grave. Now first, the darkness on the earth. You know, it's, it's not hard for any of us to see that something is deeply wrong with our world. But it wasn't always this way. If you start back at Genesis 1, you see that God created the world and He said that it was good. So what happened to God's good creation? Well, the tragedy started in the garden. Adam and Eve listened to the lies of Satan and rebelled. And from there, sin just went viral. It was passed down from generation to generation. And we've all contracted this this sickness unto death. And it darkens all that we do, even the good things that we partake in. The Puritan William Beveridge put it this way. He said, I cannot pray, but I sin. I cannot hear or preach a sermon, but I sin. I cannot give an alms or receive the sacrament, but I sin. No, I cannot so much as confess my sins, but my confessions are still aggravations of them. My repentance needs to be repented of. My tears want washing. And the very washing of my tears needs still to be washed over again with the blood of my Redeemer. Sin is pervasive in us and therefore pervasive in the world. We are not good people who occasionally do bad things. We are evil people proving it all the time. Sin separates us from God. Sin separates us from other people. Sin separates us from creation. Sin separates us even from ourselves. The shadow of sin stands over this world because we have rejected God. And as a result, here is Jesus on the cross. Now, by this point in Mark's gospel, Jesus has been on the cross for three hours. At noon, the sixth hour, the very heart of the day, darkness covered the whole land until 3 p.m., the ninth hour. Now, some scholars try to write this off as a solar eclipse, but solar eclipses don't last for three hours. They last for about seven minutes. We had one a few years ago. I don't know if you remember it. It didn't last that long. This was an act of God. He was showing us the darkness of sin that placed Christ on the cross. The physical darkness represented spiritual darkness. The Old Testament prophets had talked about the darkness of the day of the Lord, or judgment day. For example, Jeremiah said, I looked on the earth and behold, it was without form and void, and to the heavens, and they had no light. He's saying essentially sin is undoing creation. There's a darkness. The prophet Isaiah said, we we grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. God told Isaiah after that, that no one can lead themselves out of their own darkness. So what's the answer? God would strap on the armor himself and he would save them. The Redeemer would come to Jerusalem. Here is 
right here in Mark chapter 15, the fulfillment of that prophecy, their Redeemer hanging on a cross, going under the darkness for his people. Amid the darkness all around, the spotlight is on the cross. There our Savior hangs mangled and marred. It's messy and it's bloody because it has to be. This is the only way to forgiveness. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And the wages of sin is death. But the blood of goats and bulls isn't enough. Man's sin requires man's blood. And our sins are so great, nothing less than Christ's cross can save us. The only hope of any light at all is by the light himself going under the darkness for us. Dying in the darkness for our darkness. Letting the darkness engulf him and take him down. The darkness on the earth leads to the darkness over the sun, which is our second point. We see that Jesus felt the darkness that day. Verse 34 said, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mark includes both the the, the Aramaic version that Jesus actually spoke and the Greek translation for his readers. According to verse 35, some thought he was calling for Elijah. The Aramaic words misheard could sound something like that. And in Jewish thought, Elijah, who had, if you remember, he didn't die. He was just taken into heaven. Well, in Jewish thought, they thought he would come back one day. But in verse 36, you see, they, they take sour wine to him. As fulfilling of another prophecy in Psalm 69, 21. For my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Now this isn't the the same wine. You might remember Jesus also offered wine on the way to the cross. That wine mixed with myrrh was offered in order to prolong his life. I mean, this is not, I'm sorry, to dull his, 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 his senses. This was intended to prolong his life. They wanted to see if Elijah would come. But Elijah wasn't coming. He wasn't crying out for Elijah anyway. He was crying out for another reason. Not for someone to save him, but to show the kind of salvation that he secured. His cry was the first verse of Psalm 22. Why that psalm? Because there the psalmist David laments the feeling of forsakenness. The first two verses say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. I wonder if you know that feeling. If you have felt forsaken. Have you ever felt abandoned? On the cross, that's how Jesus felt as the darkness came over him. And he wants us to know that he identifies with that feeling. That he identifies with us. 
His cry is our cry. Because our cry is His cry. Dane Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly, says this. New Testament scholar Richard Bauckham notes that while Psalm 22 one was originally written in Hebrew, Jesus spoke it in Aramaic and thus was personally appropriating it. Jesus wasn't simply repeating David's experience of a thousand years earlier as a convenient parallel expression. Rather, every anguished Psalm 22-1 cry across the millennia was being recapitulated and fulfilled and deepened in Jesus. His was the true Psalm 22-1 of which ours are only the shadows. As the people of God, all our feelings of forsakenness funneled through an actual human heart in a single moment of anguished horror on Calvary, an actual forsakenness. The world's light was going out. As the Bible says, he who knew no sin was becoming sin for us. All our darkness was placed on him. As the prophet Isaiah said, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. On the cross, all the iniquity of all of God's people throughout all history, past, present, even in the future, was laid on His Son and God's wrath was poured out on Him. And it killed Him. Jesus did not die a normal death of of mere physical expiration. Jesus died the extraordinary death of spiritual expiation. He made amends for our guilt. He atoned for our sins. By his death, Jesus set us right with God. He went into God's courtroom of divine justice as our substitute and received the guilty verdict that we deserve. He was led to the place of slaughter and executed for our sins, not for his own. Jesus hung there, covered in darkness, physically and spiritually, experiencing the very hell that we deserve to give us the very heaven that we long for. And as Psalm 22 says at the end, He has done it. It is finished. So when we pick up our Bibles and we get to Romans 8, 1, for example. That great verse that says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. It means that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right now you are free from the eternal punishment of sin. Right now you are free from condemnation. You might condemn yourself. But God won't condemn you because He condemned Jesus instead on the cross. Right now, in this very moment, God fully approves of you because Jesus paid it all. Not some, not in part, 
Not even a down payment. All. All of our sin. There is therefore now no condemnation. You are, if you are in Christ, utterly and eternally free forever. This is the grace of God. Grace is like, it's like looking behind you and realizing God isn't chasing you down with a hammer to condemn, but looking ahead and seeing the nail-pierced hands of Jesus open wide to welcome you. We don't deserve this. But it's ours. All you need to do to receive this gift of grace is just accept it with the empty hands of faith. That's all he's asking us to do. Behold. Accept. I love the way Gerhard Ford said it. We are justified freely for Christ's sake, by faith, without the exertion of our own strength, gaining of merit, or doing of works. To the age-old question, what shall I do to be saved? The confessional answer is shocking. Nothing. Just be still. Shut up and listen for once in your life to what God the Almighty, Creator and Redeemer, is saying to His world and to you in the death and resurrection of His Son. Listen and believe. We see something of this silencing power of the cross and the centurion's reaction to Jesus' death. In verse 39, it says, When Jesus made a loud cry and gave up his spirit, the centurion said, Truly, this man was a son of God. This is, this is interesting to me. This is the first time in Mark's gospel that a human voice refers to Jesus as the son of God. Not who I'd expect to confess that. The centurion saw the struggle of Jesus on the cross. He saw the darkness descend. He heard the words uttered. And this professional executioner noticed something different was happening here. Something else is going on. On the cross, Jesus was representing his people. The Greek word that's used for loud cry is what the author of Hebrews uses when he said, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. The context there in Hebrews is Jesus' learning obedience through what he suffered. So then the, the, the cry on the cross was a cry of obedient suffering. Why was he obeying? Because we needed him to. His cry became our cry. His obedience became our obedience. His suffering was our suffering. His forsakenness was our forsakenness. Like Isaac taken up the mountain by his father, Jesus is there as a sacrifice. But this time, there is no angel from heaven who will call the father to relent. The knife is plunged. 
the son dies. When he died, verse 38 says, the curtain of the temple was torn in two, and notice, from top to bottom. That's important because it tells us another result of the cross. Where there was once separation between man and God in the very heart of God's temple, His dwelling place on earth, there is now open access to Him in Christ. The great high priest has gone behind the curtain and offered Himself as the final sacrifice. When His flesh was torn, the temple curtain came down with it. No more separation. No other mediator between God and man is needed. By His blood, we now have all the access to God we will ever need. We can come boldly to the throne of grace now. God will hear us because on the cross, Jesus wasn't heard. We will never be forsaken now because on the cross, Jesus was This is why this is the great exchange. There is nothing better than this. There is nothing we need more than this. Psalm, 30, Psalm 22 starts with lament. But do you know how it ends? In praise for God's deliverance. Jesus cried, verse 1, to give us the rest of the psalm. He asked for our deliverance through him, and we received it. (laughs) Satan can't condemn us anymore. The world can't ultimately destroy us. We can't even ruin ourselves anymore. Christ's once-for-all sacrifice has conquered it all. It truly is finished. Jesus endured the darkness of our sin on our behalf. And then he entered the darkness of the grave. Let's look at that now. Why does Mark even record the burial of Jesus? If someone dies, we we could just assume he's buried, right? But you know, throughout history, this has been a really contested point of the story. Some say Jesus didn't really die on the cross. You know, maybe he passed out and was taken down and then he recovered somewhere and went on to, to live out the rest of his life. Muslims say he was taken down or taken to heaven before he died on the cross. Others say maybe dogs ate his body. Who knows? But from the earliest of days, the burial of Jesus was an important and well-recorded point. All four Gospels record the burial. In the earliest Christian creed, the Apostles' Creed, it includes it. But why does this burial matter so much? Because only a dead Jesus saves. Only a dead and buried Jesus experienced the full wrath of God against our sin. Only a dead and buried Jesus can resurrect. If he wasn't really dead and truly buried, the resurrection couldn't have happened. It was only for show. It was a little trick. It was an illusion. But if the resurrection didn't happen, as Paul said, our preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain. What's the point? Who cares? The details Mark includes leads us to the conclusion that Jesus really did die and he really was buried. 
You look and see verses 42 and 43. It tells us that by evening, because it was the day of preparation, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Sanhedrin council, took courage and went to Pilate to ask for his body. Now, these details matter because of what comes next. Verse 44 says Pilate was surprised to hear Jesus was already dead. Crucifixion normally took a bit longer than this. It could take even days. Jesus was dead in a few hours. So he called the centurion over who oversaw the death. And after confirming that Jesus actually was dead, Pilate gave Joseph his body. The point is, this isn't normal. This is completely abnormal. Usually, to complete the humiliation of the crucifixion, the body was just thrown on the trash heap. So why did Pilate give the body to Joseph? Well, Mark doesn't say. He doesn't tell us that. All he says is that he did, and that's important because it's different from the normal way of things. It's the kind of thing that would only be written down if it actually happened. Details like that matter so much in the Bible. It actually points to the historical accuracy of these things. But you know, it's important for other reasons too. It's a fulfillment of prophecy. The Old Testament prophesied this kind of burial for the Messiah. Joseph was a rich man. Only a rich man would have, 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 have had a tomb like this prepared. Isaiah, for example, said the Messiah would have his grave made with a rich man in his death and that the tomb would be cut out of a rock. Even more amazing, John says in his account that this tomb was in a garden. Remember, that's where this great tragedy began. The Puritan commentator Matthew Henry puts it this way, In the Garden of Eden, death and the grave first received their power, and now in a garden they are conquered, disarmed, and triumphed over. In a garden Christ began His passion, and from a garden He would rise and begin His exaltation. In his death, Jesus is, is undoing the terrible events of the Garden of Eden. And in his burial, he's planted to become the first fruits of the resurrection. If you're in Christ, his burial represents your burial. As Paul says, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. And that's important because of what he says next. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. In other words, we too will be resurrected as Jesus was. When that stone was rolled over Jesus' grave, he took your sin in there with him. He buried it away in his death, which means you don't have to bear the punishment of it anymore. Yes, you still have some darkness in you, but there is also now a new light. His death purchased it and his burial sealed it. Your sins are there in that grave dead and gone in the sight of God. And your sins will never be resurrected. But you will be. That's amazing. 
all that you hate about yourself. All the guilt that you feel over the things that you wish just you had never done. All those thoughts that you can't get rid of. That despair. That sadness. Buried in the grave with Christ. One day we will be free, finally and fully from all of that in our resurrected bodies. Because we know that on the third day, Jesus was resurrected. That his body came back to life and he became for us the first fruits of what we will one day be in him. Paul says in Romans 4.25, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. In other words, God accepted Jesus' payment. And in him, he promises us new life. This isn't a maybe. This is a certainty. As dark as this world is, as dark as your heart even still is, the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it and will not overcome it. This is the good news of the gospel. And it's available to all who will accept it. And you know, sometimes we just think, I, when we finally get to that point where maybe this is true, we often also get to the point where we think, I, I don't know that I actually can have that, though. I mean, I know myself. I'm not worthy of this. But the cross says, you cannot be too low for Jesus. In fact, the cross was the lowest form of death. It was the most humiliating form of execution that has ever been invented in human history. Jesus came all the way down to be visible to anyone, to everyone. You know, there's another little hint in the passage even that, that, that points to this truth. Did you notice Mark's inclusion of the women in verses 40 and 41? Why mention them? Well, for one, because women were the lowest of all in that day. That's crazy to us to think about today, but it was true back then. I mean, they, they were watching from afar because Jewish convention demanded that they watch from afar. Their witness didn't even matter in court. But they were witnesses to God's salvation that day. When almost nothing else was, God was available to them. His salvation was for them. They saw Christ's death. They saw His burial. And they saw His resurrection. God was using them, almost metaphorically, as the lowest among us to tell His story. That's the kind of God we have. You are not disqualified from His salvation. In fact, if you think you are, perhaps that makes you most qualified for. He loves to save those who have no other hope. He's really good at that. 
Even if you watch from afar, the cross is God's action that draws you near. You might think, okay, but even if I accept this now, what, what if I mess up tomorrow? What if I mess up 5, 10, 20, 25 years from now? I mean, really mess up. I mean, isn't there some point at which this salvation just it, 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 it can't be true for me anymore? John Bunyan was a man who knew that feeling well. He, he asked himself that question a lot. And he spoke the gospel to himself to assure his heart. And he actually wrote a little book, and these Puritans, they did this thing all the time. They'd take one verse, and they'd write a whole book on it. And he wrote this book called Come and Welcome to Jesus Christ. It was devoted to one verse in John 6, verse 37, which in the King James Version says, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Here's how Bunyan talked to himself. And here's how he counsels us to talk to ourselves. But I am a great sinner, you say. I will no wise cast out, says Christ. But I'm an old sinner, you say. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I am a hard-hearted sinner, you say. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I'm a backsliding sinner, you say. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have served Satan all my days, you say. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have sinned against delight, you say. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have sinned against mercy, you say. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have no good thing to bring with me, you say. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. The very place where you see yourself as most undeserving is the very place at which Jesus' cross says to you, come to me. You say, but when does his welcome end? And the cross says, never. Jesus always has the final word with us. That's part of what makes him God. And he's saying to us that his salvation is not temporary. His sacrifice is not for a limited time. This is a permanent deal. And we need nothing more than that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the cross, for the death, for the burial, and for the resurrection of Jesus. We thank you that this darkness has not overcome, but that you have conquered, that there is salvation in you. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.